Welcome to Hot Plate, the conversations we should be having about our food and drink. I'm your host, Mirella Amato. Today on Hot Plate, we talk about wasting time in the kitchen, a new breed of drinkers, and the best way to eat. Then it's time for a blind beer date. This one's a threesome. Hello, Joshna. Hello. How are you? Things are great. Things are great. It's an exciting time to be a Torontonian. Are we talking Raptors now? We're going to talk Raptors a little bit <laughs> because they might win this thing. Uh, and already the excitement you can the past few days in this city have been nothing short of electric. Right. It's really wonderful to see. It's palpable. The excitement. Yeah. This is a big news story for all of us. Also, everywhere you turn. It's oh, every the radio. The ra- yeah. is the f- food's the same way. Yes. All the restaurants oh, are doing Raptors yep. things. There are, you know, Raptors themed things, Raptors combos. I've even seen a local, like, beautiful French patisserie now has Raptors logos on the macaron. <laughs> good, good which for, is, lucky for them it's round. Indeed, right? <laughs> indeed. Uh, so, very exciting. Tonight's the big, tonight's another game where they could win the thing. Uh, so, we're all sort of on the edge of our seats. Right. This is game. This is game six. six. So, if we win this one. We, we win, win the it. whole thing. That's it. Big news. Side note. Yep. I'm just going to take this moment to share this. I feel like we're not making enough noise about the fact that basketball was invented in Canada. I agree with you. I think. Uh, I agree with you. Should There's we a win sort this? of like order we need restored. To whip that out. I think so too. <laughs> yeah. uh, although, although not one of the players uh, are themselves Canadian, but. It's it, the fact that this is this is about our whole country now because this is the only NBA franchise that we've got. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree with you that they're even like in the like you could think that the CBC in like a heritage moment in a commercial right? would take the chance to remind all viewers that Canada basketball was in fact invented here. It was. Note, note, note for the. Yeah. All right. Back to food. What do you have back for us to today? Food, back to food. OK, so I found this really exciting piece in The New York Times. And the author of the piece essentially is really pushing back on the notion that uh, time in the kitchen is wasted. Right. Right. Which I really loved. Uh, I love this voice because I see everywhere around us there are messages. uh, And obviously this is all from people wanting to sell us food instead of having us foolishly grind out in the kitchen to produce it for ourselves. But what was fascinating is that he I think the tipping point for him on this was the notion that you could get a cup of frozen fruits and vegetables and yogurt mailed to your house for you to dump in a blender and make your own smoothie they mail it they, it's it's like some sort of plan that you can get that sends you these cups that like like a yogurt cup with like a pullback foil thing on the top right that it can because all sit in your freezer and then in the mornings you just open it up pour that into your blender and off you go as opposed to opening the berries and the yogurt Precisely. that you bought. All of those containers that you will have to buy. Uh, and that's for this for this guy, that was just, that was too much. But I, the sentiment of this was something that I've been really searching for, uh, right? And I find this difficult, uh, a conversation to have, because I'm the person for whom time in the kitchen is the most joyful. 
Yes. Right? So I always feel like I'm a skewed opinion about this type of thing because the kitchen is my happy place. I never feel like I am dr- drudgery or that I'm chained to the stove. Like I'm delighted to be in the kitchen whenever I'm there. So I feel like I'm not always a fair gauge. Right. And maybe I need to open up to the notion that the kitchen is a, is a like stressful, oppressive place for other people and that, you know, and that space needs to be made for that. Um, but we cannot, like in so many conversations you and I have had across this table, we cannot have conversations about food that move them away from their, their primary function, which is to feed us and keep us alive. Right. Right. So the notion that we would need distance from something as vitally important as knowing how to actually keep ourselves alive feels nuts to me. In this day and age where everything moves so quickly to try to convince people that cooking is a waste of time, I think is dangerous because it it is a slowing down. It is a meditation, right? It's like doing the dishes, stopping to do something. Yes. And for people to who don't like cooking, that's great, but please to, find yeah. something else that yes. uh, is meditative. And in articles that I've read, they're exploring cooking to help with mental health. It's so much, so much. I have a pal actually who works specifically in mental health supports and he reports the kitchen as being the place for the for the most opportunities to confront a lot of compulsions and uh, right. It just from a, from a, a more sort of diagnosed psychosis kind of perspective, there's that really forces the problems around hands around raw meat, things touching contaminant, you know what I mean? And the kitchen really offers people the challenge to work through a lot of that, which I think is fascinating. That is cool. Right. That yes. side of it. But then I think what you were alluding to is the calmness. And the, the hopefully tranquility. Now, that is always assuming that for you and I, time in the kitchen is generally always successful. So now you're opening up another can of worms. Talk to me. Because one of the things that I came across in researching this is in some articles they're saying, you know, it saves time. Mm-hmm. And they're also saving, saying it saves you research. You don't have to take time to research. And it occurs to me that in the era we live in where it's all about functional foods yes. and making sure that all these healthy things are in your right. food. Yeah, they're all jacked up. If, full of for the, example, yeah. you want to make a smoothie, it's a lot easier to grab a prepackaged one that tells you this is good for this, this and this. Mm-hmm. We toss it all together for you. And the notion that, oh, well, if I want to make the best possible smoothie. I have to research the ingredients and understand the combinations instead of the goal just being, I want to, when I cook, I just want something that tastes yummy to me. That's the other reason why I love cooking because yeah. I can cook exactly what I what like you to sure. my specifications. Surely. Uh, a normal person will not enjoy the pasta I eat because I take al dente to the next level. Oh, you level. really do, huh? That's amazing. <laughs> you know, almost raw. Uh, but it, it is it was interesting to me that extra piece that maybe we have in a way overcomplicated food. Um, you or, talk or, a lot about pressure, food literacy. It, right? We, the pressure that we've put on it. To if you're going to have a thing, why not have the best smoothie you could have, or the most you want? Why about just have a smoothie? But the the pressure is maximize your smoothie consumption by putting all of these right things into it. Uh, that is really fascinating. And w- what I think is hilarious is the notion that they want to save you time from researching when 
And this moment in history, researching is is the most efficient tidy thing right. it has ever it's a been quick google right Pre- previously we'd <laughs> have to true. pull books off of a shelf and start thumbing through <laughs> pages and understanding yeah. an index on <laughs> nutritional in you know supplements or whatever yeah. it is whereas now you just type in best smoothie ever most superfood like whatever you want you just mm-hmm. type it in and a list of things shows up uh, it's extraordinary to think that even that few seconds of a google page to load is more time than people are suggesting that we should spend yeah, because first of all, it doesn't take that much time. No, and not to not to mention the environmental impact, which I'm is a big concern. It's a huge deal. Ordering in all the time. Right? Already, the thing is involved. in a plastic cup, and now it's going to go in something else, and potentially something else to sit on the a front stoop somewhere waiting for you, or the box with the ice because it's a frozen thing. So now we need a plastic lined box that has ice packs in the bottom. And when, I don't know. I think one of the great things that this author did was really reinforcing the notion that cooking is a life skill, right? It is not a sort of thing that you fill your leisure time with. It is a life skill. Um, and and re- I think that we could all do with revisiting that part of the conversation, because one of the bits that he says that I love so much is, uh, shouldn't I spend time? Shouldn't I spend time cooking? Isn't cooking worth the effort? Right. Um, Do we ask people how they find time to drink water? Right. Which I thought was a perfect, perfect comparison. Right. This is about this is about staying alive. Not in a sort of desperate, hungry sort of way, but in a connection to your life force sort of way. Uh, Why? Why on earth would supporting that or facilitating that be something not worth spending time doing? I mean, we see we see the echo of this a lot, right? Uh, we we are hearing a lot about uh, new condo buildings and new developments, and the residential units that are inside there are being made with <gasps> right. tiny ovens and tiny kitchens. There's no room. There's no room to actually roast a thing or make a dinner for more than one or two people. It's no count. Never mind. There's no counter there's no, space. It's just, yeah, I know, I know. I don't understand. Right, and none of your pans fit in there. You no, know, nothing fits. Everything is this really micro version of itself. Here's the other piece. Yeah. Uh, This freaked me out. Mm -hmm. Because when you mentioned this topic, one of the things that came to mind for me is that takeout appears to be in some way the new standard. And I remembered Mm. my uh, deep amusement when it was a pizza that was advertised a couple of years ago. It's a frozen pizza you can buy at the grocery store and they advertise it as it's just as good as takeout. And in my mind, I was like, that's the that's the bar. That's it. You know, that That, standard for takeout the bar. But here's the kicker Uh, to prepare for the segment today. I thought I need to remember what company what pizza company that was i googled it it's everywhere there's tons of recipes that advertise just like takeout Uh, this appears to be some kind of new standard how interesting like what happened it tastes just like home cooking i know i I know. know but even just think about the crazy messaging right first the messaging was don't you fuss yourself with this just order it and we'll bring it to your door right fine great uh, then it is, no, 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 no. Why wait for something to come to your door when it could already be in your freezer? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, it's so, it's the notion that we are, the goal is to get to a place where everything we want to eat is 
instantly available yeah. to yep. us. Like that seems to be where all arrows give are pointing right or give now. Me death. Yeah. Right. Uh, and it's it's uh, w- one of the bits from this piece that I thought was so compelling was the idea that the message from the smoothie delivery people and mm-hmm. the like is give me back my life by keeping me out of the kitchen. Oh, dear. Right. That's, when when I mean, there's, I think it's completely backwards. <laughs> right. I, I think it's completely backwards. I think there'd be substantial arguments for the fact that spending more time in the kitchen will, in fact, enrich and lengthen your life. And on the flip side, <laughs> there's so much research about the social aspects of cooking and cooking together right. and um, the mental health research. I actually came across this. Yeah, let's hear it. Quote from a woman named. Rochelle Kana, she's a therapist in the U.S. And I found this interesting because I've always enjoyed cooking. And so she says, the process of following a recipe, measuring ingredients, paying attention to textures and smells, and even setting the table fall into the category of um, executive function skills. When we have strong executive function skills, we also tend to manage anger and regulate emotions more effectively. Oh, I love that. I like it. Uh, I like it. To me, it's just it, it just makes I, I, th- I think it's really, really dangerous to put too many eggs in the basket of a scenario where, where we are so distanced and outsourced from our food. But it's happening everywhere on all around us. Right. In a sort of terrifying right. The kitchens are shrinking. Get back into the kitchen, folks. Get back into the kitchen. Don't <laughs> we don't need any more cars driving around. We don't need any more congestion on the streets. Just get back into the kitchen. So, Josh, now I came across an article I wanted to talk yes. about, uh, about IPAs. Okay. But before we dive in, I did want to mention to our listeners, I don't think we've said this before. If we talk about an article and it's intriguing to you, you can find it in the show notes for the podcast. It's oh, available. so important. Yeah, it's available on our website, which is hotplatepod.com. Com. But whichever podcast provider you use, if you look in the show notes and there's clickable links, then you'll be able to click right through to the articles we're talking How nice. about there. nice. Little gift for all you listeners. <laughs> I know I like to geek out. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, IPAs. Yes. Let's talk about this. So before we start, I wanted to provide a little bit of context. Uh, the IPA beer style represented a third of craft beer sales in the U.S. in uh, 2017, and has grown a third since. of craft beer sales. Yeah. Okay, that's big. So it is. It's only seven percent of total beer sales. Right. There are you know non-craft beers that are selling very well, but um, in terms of the craft beer space, that's huge. Mm-hmm. And from t- 2002 to 2017, the IPA category was the most entered category in the Great American Beer Festival, which is uh, the big American beer competition. So IPAs have been a big thing yeah, a big deal beer, for huh? a very long time. Okay. Interestingly, they were debunked last year by the New England IPA, which is still an IPA. <laughs> it's just <laughs> a style of IPA. <laughs> Are you an IPA drinker, Josh? No, distinctly no. They're it's, not for you. It's too much. And that's, as I've sort of experimented with drinking beer, I know that anybody that proudly talks about their IPA nature that's just to turn away right because it's the, the and and more extreme versions of it is a less and less desirable beer for me is it the bitterness mm-hmm. it's just it's uh yep. it's too much it's too it's too much for like once it just it's it's off-putting 
Fair all, enough. All embrace of bitterness understood aside, uh, it's it's more than I can handle. We just have to find the right food for it. Oh, no, I love I feel that. like this is a personal challenge. I'll take that challenge. So this article was in New Brewer, and it's not about IPAs specifically. It's mm-hmm. about people who drink IPAs. Okay, right. And I really liked reading it because it, it a couple of things that I've observed really clicked for me, and suddenly I felt like things were making sense. Okay, tell me more about this. So this article was talking about the fact that there is a huge percentage of IPA drinkers, it's not all IPA drinkers, that are behaving very much like mainstream drinkers of the 90s. And so what they're talking about in this article is the fact that a while ago, when craft beer was not mainstream at all, it was a very niche thing, the kind of people who were drawn to craft beer were extremely adventurous people. People who like to try new things, try different things. And the typical craft beer drinker at the time loved to explore different flavors. And that's, you know, how the craft beer movement was born with Mm -hmm. all these different styles and flavors everywhere. Tinkering and experimentation. Right. Uh, And I'm sure as an IPA not lover, Mm -hmm. you have noticed that increasingly you go to beer bars and instead of having a huge, wonderful selection of beers, it's eight IPAs and two not IPAs. 100%. Right. They are everywhere. Uh, they are everywhere. They are they are always involved. So here's the interesting thing. This article theorizes that as craft beer has grown and become a lot more mainstream, it has naturally drawn in a whole bunch of other drinkers who are maybe not so adventurous. Uh-huh. And the article doesn't cover why, but it does appear and certainly Everywhere we look, uh, as I mentioned earlier, when you walk into a bar, et cetera, supports it. These drinkers seem to have gravitated towards the IPA style. Okay, right. So these drinkers, rare, like the, you know, the mainstream drinkers of the 90s, rarely drink another style. They only drink IPAs. Right, there's loyalty. There's major loyalty. They right. might have a pale ale, but they're not, they don't have that same adventurous mm-hmm. spirit. Uh, some of them are brand loyal, but they're, they're not brand loyal because they identify with the brand. They're just brand loyal because they know that one, they know how it tastes, and they feel safe mm-hmm. drinking that mm-hmm. beer. I see this. And otherwise, if they're not brand loyal, they just as long as it's an IPA, it's okay. Uh, another thing... Well, two things that I found fascinating. This beer drinker is not curious about how beer is made. When I think about the IPA or the beer geek, yeah, you know, uh, like myself, I mean, it's all about where was it made? Let's talk to the brewer. Yeah, what yeah, went yeah, into yeah, it? Yeah. What so, was growing beside the hops? Yes. So, this new segment of the IPA drinking population has no interest in that. And even more interestingly to me, it's not really about the beer for them. They just want to go out. They want to go to the brewery. The brewery looks cool. They're out with friends. They're having a good time. And they're just going to drink that thing that is familiar and comfortable to them. So really behaving like this 1990s sort of mainstream beer drinker. Oh, and okay. I don't know enough about the culture at the point, but what is, I don't know enough about this 1990s mainstream beer drinker. Can you paint that right. picture a little? What, what's that story? Well, we're talking about, you know, remember the days where people were, you know, I'm a, I'm a Labatt Blue drinker or I'm a Mosin oh, X drinker. So the, the identity, that, that identification piece. And, you know, this comes out of it's a time true. when we were talking with Wayne Reeves in the previous episode about E.P. Taylor, who consolidated all the breweries. So there was a time, maybe 20 or 30 years, where... All beers were golden lagers, and the only thing that really distinguished them from one another was 
the brand who made it. Mm, and, and the so, label on the outside, essentially. Right. Uh, I mean, the flavors varied right. somewhat, but Fair. within a narrow spectrum. Okay. And so, you know, that's when the age of beer advertising, there's a, a fantastic book out there uh, about all about, you know, the advertising wars. Because at the end of the day, that's how you created brand loyalty and people identified oh, with course, the brand and, you know, course. the whole your dad's beer, not your dad's beer. It all ties into that spirit. Yes of being attached to uh, one beer and one style of beer and just drinking what is comfortable to you. Right. So the the craft beer drinker, the traditional craft beer drinker huh. is the opposite of that. And so it is less about brand loyalty and more about style loyalty. Yes. And it almost appears to be about uh, a comfort zone. Another thing yeah. that came up in the article that really right. freaked me out because it's the opposite of what craft beer is mm-hmm. because they interviewed a few people, a few of these new breed IPA drinkers. And something that came up was it's what everyone is drinking, oh. which is the polar opposite of what craft That's not beer the is. Inten- right? I, even I understand that that is not the intention, of course. So this is fascinating to me. And what is further fascinating is to, or to your point earlier, how did they gravitate towards IPA? Well, the, that's my the most next challenging style. Like, it is such an intense flavor for it to be so populous and mainstream. That is very surprising. I wonder, as you were speaking, I am wondering if it has anything to do with the whole, like, I'll just have an IPA. That's, I think that's what it is. With the three letters. Because I, I actually can't think of another style of beer that is that quick to roll off the tongue, right? Just give me the IPA, whatever it is. Give me the IPA, right? It explains a lot to me because I don't understand how all of these IPAs suddenly are everywhere and the craft beer movement in general, there are still highly exploratory beers being brewed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, you know, a huge percentage of the beers out there are IPAs. There are breweries that only brew IPAs, a range of IPAs. Yes. It's difficult to find uh, a stout or a brown ale or an amber ale uh, in most establishments. But, you know, it has to do with this segment of the the drinking population. And here's my favorite part. And this is just me speculating. Okay. But I'm sure you've heard of these New England IPAs. Yes, of course. The hazy ones. Have you had them? No. Okay. These are these cloudy, these cloudier beers, right? So yeah. they are cloudy. They are also way less bitter. Oh. The bitterness has been dialed down significantly. Mm. They plump up the body. Uh, so part of that haze is uh, proteins. And um, so that's giving a fuller mouthfeel. And it really is a focus on the aromatics of the IPA. Mm. So it smells like an IPA, but you don't get that bitterness the sharpness of that the is not there to me without that bitter finish is it an ipa right well that's how i feel and i was really confused when these beers came out because to your point to me they they don't taste like ipas mm-hmm. the delight of an ipa is that that bracing bitterness and yet as i mentioned earlier they have in one year since they were created surpassed the ipa in no popularity, yep. Yeah, these days, you go to a bar. Something I have to check now. When there's an IPA on the blackboard, I always have to ask: Is this a real IPA or is this one of these right. um, hazy these, IPAs? These hazy IPAs. I love it. So I was chatting in uh, Denver with uh, a fellow master Cicerone. Mm. There's a lot to be said there. Both the, I was chatting in Denver and the, with the fellow master Cicerone, who they is check the, and check okay. the brewmaster for a brewery out there. Uh, the brewery and 
asking him, you know, what's up with these beers? And he pointed out to me, and this makes sense, everyone wants to drink IPAs, but not everyone likes IPAs because they're bitter. So this style has basically come up to accommodate these IPA drinkers who don't like bitterness. But still somehow weirdly prioritizing the need for this identity. I get so confused. That is so bizarre. If you don't like IPAs, have an amber ale. Have well, and it's a, not like there's so all have... this insane pressure to drink one kind of beer. In fact, it's, it's it feels to me the reality feels in, entirely the opposite. Right. But maybe maybe I'm not dialed in enough to this culture. But this article explains it. If there's this new category of drinkers right. who just find this comfort in the IPA and in ordering an IPA, it makes sense to me that percentage of them aren't keen on bitterness and would really love these uh, hazy IPAs. Oh my God, that's so, that's such a convoluted road to a glass of beer. It really is, but <laughs> but fascinating. I'm curious to see where this is all going yeah, me too. to go. The yeah. adventurous craft beer and drinkers if, are still out yeah. there. We still have a variety of beers. Um, I don't know if this, the hazy IPA is going to lead people back to less right, hoppy or if styles, the pendulum will swing if, in another direction. Yeah, IPAs are just going to morph into a million different things. All right, let's wait and see. A okay. new study, Joshna, has come out that I think is fantastic. And again, just probably reinforces what we've known all along. Sure. But the study came out of the U.S. in Florida. They tested 350 participants. And what they were testing was how the balance and posture part of your brain interacts with the part of your brain that processes taste and flavor. And what they wanted to figure out is, is whether you're standing up or sitting down, does that have an impact in how you taste food? Whoa. Do you want to guess how it turned out? <laughs> <laughs> My instinct says that uh, sitting down is the preferred way to consume food for maximum flavor and enjoyment. But of course. Right? That, that is part of the reason why eating in a car is, is as successful a thing as it is. Huh. Right? I think that there's a connection there because you're, you're on the move, but you're sitting down. That's interesting because I do car eating as well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ashamed to admit Surely, it. Surely, when I listen, we all do. Isn't it fascinating what instinctively we know works? And that yeah. even more fascinating that they have to come up with studies. Yeah, to, listen. To, I love the studies. To tell that us that out. our common sense and our lived experience is in fact the truth? Yes. So they did two tests. It was really cool. The first one okay. they did was with pita bread. And they had people standing up tasting the pita bread and people sitting down okay. tasting the pita bread. And the ones... Sitting down, thought it tasted great, and the one standing up gave it a lower score. It turns out that when you stand up, a whole part of your brain is trying to uh, keep you in balance and just making sure you don't fall down and um, your blood flow is changing and your taste buds essentially shut down. They mute a little bit, right? They mute a little bit. So much so that they did, and this is what I really enjoyed, they did a test with brownies. Yes, okay. Some very delicious brownies. Mm -hmm. They had some people taste them standing up, some people taste them sitting down. People sitting down said they were delicious. The people standing up thought, you know, eh, they're, they're fine. Yeah. They're fine. They took the same brownies, redid the recipe with a quarter cup of salt. Oh, oh, okay. Can you guess what happened? With extra quarter cup of salt. I, I'm guessing that it was more noticeable to the seated, the seated eaters, right? They right. were the ones that the standing eaters perhaps were not as bothered. That's my guess. True. 
So okay. it's not that when you're you're sitting, everything tastes better. It's when you're sitting, you can better perceive what you are tasting. Right. So the you people sitting down, taste. so the brownies were no good, and the people standing up thought they were just as good oh as the previous goodness. batch. So your oh, your ability big. to perceive is really compromised. Well, and what does that say for the standing cocktail party? Right. Right. It's so. And, and when you listen from a kitchen's perspective, mm-hmm. the amount of fussy work that goes into if ever I use tweezers in a kitchen, it's to assemble canapes. Right. And hors d'oeuvres. Right. That are 100 percent never served to seated people. Yeah. And th- that's a nightmare in general because people are chatting. They're not paying attention to the food. Not Nine times all. out of ten, the lighting is bad. There's right. some music going on. I mean, you're. I mean, Why we don't just give people just peanut butter them. and jam yeah. <laughs> is the bigger <laughs> question. But but to know, like, the cook inside of me is very thankful for this information, mm-hmm. right? Because, like, there seems to be a futility involved in trying to, because in that little canapé and hors d'oeuvre served at a standing cocktail party, my task as a cook is to cram as much flavor into this small bite, right? Not really knowing at all up until this moment that it's because they that can't this taste fundamental anything. brain function is going to stand in the way. So here's what's actually going on. Uh, so the study found that holding a standing posture for even a few minutes, okay, so even a short time, promotes physical stress, muting taste buds. The force of gravity pushes blood to the lower parts of the body, oh. causing the heart to work harder to pump blood back up to the top of the body, accelerating heart rate, causing a chain reaction that reduces sensory sensitivity, which impacts food and beverage taste evaluation, food temperature perception, and overall consumption volume. So you eat less standing up. Yes. When I first heard about this, I thought so much about the number of standing meals that I, as a cook, have eaten. Right. You eat something off of the corner of the counter or it's like you walk by and take one bite as you're, you know what I mean? As you're prepping everything else. It's just so you don't collapse. It's interesting. I, yeah, I've come across a lot of wow. mentions recently of, you know, how poorly chefs eat. It's really uh, it's the most ridiculous a, thing, right? Because it, of their schedule and, yep. you know. And the context. Uh, the, I've always thought the madness of the fact that I could spend 10 hours with so much food passing through my hands, mm-hmm. yet none of it actually going into my mouth. Right. right. The fact that I'm starving by the end of it all seems a bit ironically hilarious. But I like I want to think more about this. I think so much how much effort goes into making cocktail party food, mm-hmm. uh, yet not realizing that everyone's got one anti behind their back in their experience of it. Is that time? Da, 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 da. Blind beer date. Blind, blind beer, beer date. date. <laughs> blind beer date. <laughs> when we fun. have more of a budget, we will have blind beer date music. Ooh, love that. Right? For sure. Nice. All that love connection music. Okay. So uh, I like the I like your theme about the uh, using stuff from your cellar mm-hmm. and bringing flavor, you know, things that have sort of been hid- hidden away over there. So I have chosen to bring you things that are from what's... What's cooking this week for me? Fantastic. Things that I've I've been making, right, that are in my fridge that I'm hopefully feeling good about. So this week I have brought a little jar of hummus. Ooh. Um, Now, there are a lot of opinions about how hummus should be made, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether dried chickpeas, canned chickpeas. There's lots of thoughts. I like it with bold flavor, so pronounced garlic and lemon. Love it. Uh, And I like it smooth. 
Right. right. I like it. I, I like to. I've ever had a chunky hummus. Ah, sometimes That's a, thing? a lot of health foodie people will always just sort of pulse it quickly. Oh, that way it feels and more rugged. And they'll be like, it's so natural. rugged and textural. Whereas, yes. uh, no thanks. I like no. whipped, smooth, beautiful. In fact, uh, the uh, I've heard that the uh, Hebrew translation for what you go to do at an Israeli restaurant when you're eating hummus yes. is swiping hummus. Swipe. Right? You're like, what are you doing? Just kicking around, swiping some hummus because it's about taking the pita and the beautiful smoothness that allows oh. you to swipe up some hummus. Right. So, right? I'm Much not better. feeling the chunky. Zero on the chunk. Uh, and I've understood that hummus is not anything unless it's been garnished with some olive oil and some spices. That's what I'm noticing. It looks right? quite appetizing. So uh, there's no olive oil in the hummus. No, thank you. But it has been garnished with nice olive oil, and then I've just sprinkled some za'atar on top. I have never made hummus, but you're making it sound like this is something I could probably whip together quite easily. One hundred percent. I should have been doing all along. Oh my goodness! I'm actually pretty surprised to hear that you have never made hummus. Because I do before. love it. Yeah, and it's easy and simple, uh, and uh, and you can make it just, a food just the way you like. One hundred percent. Chickpeas, garlic. Yep. There's some tricks that I've learned. Okay. Uh, which I can tell you later, but okay. uh, essentially, hummus has got to be smooth, a bit light. Big flavor. Uh, so I've brought it here, and then I've just brought some simple potato chips. All right. Let's have a taste. Right? Simple, easy. We're going to do a lot of crunching. Resist. We're going to do a lot of oral crunching. But here we go. It should be pita, but listen, we're doing the best we can. Well, chips will tie into the beer nicely, I'm this, sure. This, this tub of hummus is looking for love. I like the lemon level. Thank you. Mm. I like to crank it up. That's the first thing I noticed. Thanks. The tang is really important to me. It also lends a real freshness. Mm -hmm. I agree. Ooh. Okay. I'm just going to have one more bite and then I'll present the beer. (laughs) This is a good And which spices are on the top here? This is za'atar, which is a spice mix. Um, The origins of which are hotly debated. Uh, but essentially, it's this sort of like Israeli-Palestine area of the world. It is a collection of of uh, herbs and spices. So wild thyme and oregano, sumac, sesame seeds. Right? The, the oregano I can smell. Yep. Um, sumac I'm hunting for now because I do enjoy yeah, sumac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is quite quiet here. And mm. also, I believe that in this particular context, the lemoniness may be outplaying the sour. That's what I was going right? to say. I'm You're, wondering if the sumac is causing the lemon note. Yep. Mm. Um, so but it's something. the actual lemon that's giving the lemon note and it's overshadowing the sumac. Yes. Got it. Yes. Fresh lemon juice is what's doing that. Uh, but it's interesting. We've seen smoked paprika, uh, you know, being used the same way. Mm-hmm. Just a little dusting of something on top. Nothing too bossy, but hey, it's like jewelry, let's say. Okay, so okay. it's interesting you brought up the cellar earlier because I've decided to to break that trend. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I was actually inspired by our chat with Sarah in oh, yes. episode 14, and I have brought an alcohol-free beer. No way! Mm-hmm. Nice yeah. move! Okay. So this is called Partake. Partake is making... Well, but look, it walks and talks like a beer. It does walk and talk like a beer. Partake okay. makes four beers. As far as I know, there's a pale ale, an IPA, this is the blonde, and there's a new stout Great. that I haven't seen in stores yet, but I know exists. And this, I'm trying to see, the alcoholic content is 0.3%, so right. essentially nothing. Solid. Uh, and solid. I would say this is the most common 
alcohol-free beer out there. I see it okay, in, great. in many different okay. places. And it is partake. one of the better reputed one. Mm-hmm. And it says uh, Partake Brewing, Toronto, Canada. All right. So it must be local. Okay. Shall we Let's do try it. it? Let's taste this. Cheers. Mm. Cheers. Cheers. So it tastes, I mean, it tastes like beer, but there's an open space. Yeah. There's a gaping hole. Right. <laughs> um, which is the malt. One would say open space, others say gaping hole. Yes. Uh, it's And the malt is the big it's challenge the malt. In, okay. uh, in alcohol-free beer because when you make beer, you take the grains and you steep them in water and the starches from the grains convert to sugar. So it's a very yeah. sweet, yes. sweet this. Right. liquid called wort. And then you throw in the yeast and the yeast converts all the sugar into alcohol. Yes. So the issue arises with alcohol-free beer. Historically, you you ended up with a really sweet beer. So Mm -hmm. they've succeeded here in at least making it not sweet. Yep. But there is, there was something missing. There's an open space for sure. But uh, I feel like if you were, like if you were, like it's pretty solid near beer. Well, I was concerned when I picked this beer because there's not many foods it could stand up to because it is quite delicate. Because it's delicate. Okay. Okay. But, well, first of all, you brought chips. So chips and beer are our best friends. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I, part of me thinks it could work and part of me is worried the hummus might overpower. There is something that happens like two thirds of the way in. Mm -hmm. Right? First you think, ah, it's not really much of a thing. And then I was thinking, because the smooth creaminess is not coming from dairy. Right. Right? Like cheese or, you know, something else like that. It, it gets it gets really washed away. Yes. Effectively. Right? Yes. With the beer. Because it's not lingering on your tongue the way milk solids can. Yes. However, in that, like, residual towards the end, some interesting combination of a thing is happening there. It is. Yeah. Right? I mean, Something's happening there. The initial impact isn't a clash at all. I would say, nope. if anything, it's just a meld. Mm-hmm. They kind of blend into each other. Totally. In a, in a very sort of happily neutral sort of way, right? It's yeah. not much of a thing. In a inoffensive. Inoffensive. Thank you. But yeah, there is that little curiosity in the finish. And I mean, it, it's generally a good sign that our first instinct was, I want to do that again. Yeah. <laughs> that usually points to a <laughs> totally, good pairing. <laughs> totally. It's quite compelling because it's like you got a little revisit of some of the sourness. Mm-hmm. You get a little chickpea hit for sure. Yeah. Right. But that's that's actually really interesting what happened there. And then I, with the <laughs> chip, I find there's a little dance afterwards. I'm there getting the, the oregano pe- peaks out mm-hmm. and then the potato chip peaks in totally. at the finish. The and like butteriness of yeah. the chip. Oh, this is like a group date. It is. It's a threesome. Right? It's totally a very effective threesome. Ding, 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 ding. This works. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying The Hot Plate, rate us or leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hot Plate Pod. Follow me at Beerology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And follow Joshna at Joshna Maharaj on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you to Joshna for joining us today. Hot Plate is recorded at Eggplant Picture and Sound Studios. Our audio engineer is Brad Tigwell. Original music by Dave Bell. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato, that's me, and Dennis Coyne. That's a wrap. Hot Plate.